the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. Together we've climbed hills and trees. Learned of love and ABC. Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, and I am alive and well. I am not dying. So you are with me, and I'm riding these airwaves into your ears this morning. We'll stimulate that auditory nerve and get the brain moving, shaking, and grooving. And we're going to have a great show this morning. I'm going to start with a little medical stuff. That seems to be popular. I'm getting feedback from friends and patients who say they like that. And Ken likes it, too. I do. I do enjoy it. I enjoy learning. I've always enjoyed learning. Yeah, and it gives you something to talk about at the water cooler. Do they have those anymore? (laughs) No, just bottles of water everywhere. Okay, the bottled water station. Yeah. You don't don't have to stand around and talk. You just grab the bottle and go. All right. Well, as you run away, yell, coronavirus. (laughs) So the coronavirus is that's a different drink, Doc. That's... Yeah, that's a different one. So Corona is a beer, and coronavirus is a virus that causes the common cold. Um, so what's the big deal here? Well, there is a strain in China that seems to be fairly uh, aggressive, and uh, there's been several handfuls of people in China who have died. So you know, you're talking thirty, forty, fifty people that have died in central China mainly uh, in the city of Wuhan, which is a city in central China in one of their states. They call them provinces. And this is a virus that is very common. Almost all of us have have had the coronavirus at some time during our life, usually in childhood, and we've built up some immunity. So we'll probably have some memory to this, even if we do come in contact with a more aggressive strain of the coronavirus. Why do they call it coronavirus? Well, in the 1960s, when we were uh, using electron microscopy to look at these small particles, we had uh, we had uh, the ability to see little particles, little viruses that we could not previously see with just a regular glass microscope because they were so small that the resolution with a regular microscope wasn't great enough. We couldn't get to enough high, high enough power to actually see these things. So we used uh, what we call an electron microscope. And well, what is this? Well, an electron microscope's like a camera uh, uh, with a flash on it, only the flash, instead of being regular light, it's electrons. And so there's a flash of electrons that's fired at the object that you want to take a picture of. And some of those electrons will bounce back and when they bounce back and they hit the imaging device, whether it's an oscilloscope or a screen or a CD or a VCR or whatever, it gives you an image. So we can take a picture and we can record that and we can see what these things look like. And this looked like it had a, a, a crown on it, a corona, a halo going around it. 
And so it was named the coronavirus, and it was quickly discovered that it was one of the common causes of the, of the cold. Uh, there are several viruses that will give us cold-like symptoms, and 99% uh, of them are benign. That is, they're not going to kill, kill you. They're just going to make you sick unless you have some other underlying problem going on. So at any rate, we've got this strain that apparently came from a fish and food market, and it's unusual for the coronavirus to jump from animal to man. Uh, unlike the flu uh, virus, influenza is more commonly associated with jumping from, from animals to humans and, and also vice versa back the other way. But this is unusual, and it, it does have the ability, as it goes between species, to uh, mutate, that is to change its genetic characteristics, it's, it alter its makeup a little bit. And so it can become more aggressive. It can become uh, easier to contract. It can uh, become easier for it to break into your body cells. And that's what viruses do. They, they get inside of our own human cells, and they use our cells to reproduce and make more of their little viruses. And so our defense is to make antibodies to these little bugs. And uh, if it's changed its capsule a little bit, our body may not recognize it immediately and it might take a little bit longer and then you're a little bit sicker and you can see how the progression goes from a common cold to maybe a little viral pneumonia and then people die from this probably at the extremes of age i don't know i haven't seen the statistics from china but uh, at any rate it has killed some people the chinese have responded with quarantines uh, they've stopped all uh, interstate or interprovince, intercity public transportation. Uh, they've uh, closed down certain areas, and uh, they've—I think—they've quarantined Wuhan, the big city in central China. And it's a big city; it's several million people. So that's no small task. Uh, I don't think that we have to worry about this. You know, I've I talked about the Ebola virus. If you guys remember when that came around a couple of years ago. And everybody was scared to death that they were going to get the Ebola virus and die. And I said, nobody's going to die from Ebola in the United States. And people said, well, why is it such a big deal in, in Africa? And I said, well, in sub-Saharan rural Africa, there's no health care. So if you get a bad virus with uh, diarrhea and hemorrhage and uh, all other kinds of problems, there's no infrastructure to take care of you. There's no IV fluids. There's no blood transfusions. And if you're old and weak or you're an infant and you're young or a small child who's already malnourished or having some other problems, you probably are not going to make it. But in the United States, we have all the armamentarium to treat diseases like uh, uh, Ebola virus. And, of course, the coronavirus, we're looking at this closely, but the public health officials both in the United States, well, in all three countries, Canada and Great Britain, are looking at this. And they're saying the same thing, that uh, we just need to practice the usual good hygiene that we practice during the cough and cold season, or during any season for that matter, and uh, not get too upset. And if you do get sick, go see your doctor, but there's really no treatment for the coronavirus. We don't have a cure for that viral illness as of yet. We've got a few antiviral antibiotics that we can use and a few viruses, but there's hundreds of viruses, and we're not at the point yet where we can <clears throat> say that we have a have an effective cure. Now, we're trying to fast-track some vaccinations for this bug 
so that we can reassure the public that everything's okay. But I don't, I don't think you need to worry. Here's what you need to do, though. If you have a cold, uh, stay home, or if you have to go out, wear a mask. Uh, if you're sneezing and you don't think you're sick, make sure you sneeze into your handkerchief or a Kleenex or your sleeve uh, so that your, your uh, micro mist of mucus and all that doesn't spray out into the public. And, you know, people say, well, how did I get sick? And I said, well, if the guy or the gal who sneezed in aisle three when you were at the grocery store left that aisle two or three minutes before you did, and then you walked through there and they had the virus, you got it now because that micro drop, those micro droplets from your sneezing and coughing will stay in the air for several minutes. They're ultra light and uh, they float. And so it takes a little while for them to fall to earth. So if you're concerned, if you have some uh, underlying problem, if you're on chemotherapy or you have HIV or you have some other disease that predisposes you to getting sicker than usual or sicker than most people would if they came in contact with a, a rough virus like this, then wear a mask, hand washing. And if you do go out in public and you're shopping, uh, make sure that you don't touch your eyes or your nose or pick your nose or put your fingers in your mouth until you can get somewhere and wash your hands. And a lot of public places now have the, uh, the sanitizer on the wall and you can just go get a little bit of that. I don't know if you go to the Publix or the Kroger's or any of the grocery stores, you can uh, grab one of the little sanitizing hand towels on the way in. Now, I don't use these. And I'll tell you why, because I want to be exposed to almost everything that I can be exposed to. And uh, I don't get sick very often, but, you know, I'm in the profession where I've got people coughing on me all day long and I come in contact with all kinds of bugs and viruses. And so my immune system is revved up a little bit more than most. And I would prefer to, unless it's something that's not curable, uh, or that is really egregious, like tuberculosis. Of course, I don't want to catch that, and I'm careful when I'm around patients with TB to wear a mask, have them wear a mask. But if if I have the opportunity to expose myself, and I don't think it's a life-threatening situation, and I get a little 24-hour bug, I go ahead and get it. I don't advise that for the general public, because you don't come in contact with all the bugs that I do. So, I'm not worried about the coronavirus, but I do think that you should practice just the good basic hygiene that you practice all the time anyway to prevent catching a bug. Wash your hands. Uh, if you're out in public and you're shaking hands with other people, make sure that you wash or sanitize your hands or use the, the stuff on the wall or grab one of the little sanitizing claws. And make sure not to touch your your eyes or your nose or your mouth and rub your eyes with your finger and that sort of thing because any mucous membrane can be a, a portal of entry for a virus. They're so small they can get through, uh, they can get between the cells in, in, in our mucous membranes. Now, our outer skin, it's tougher. That's uh, water resistant. And uh, since that is water resistant, it's, it's hard for anything to get through that. There are a few things, but most viruses are not going to get through that. And even with things like cold sore viruses, like the herpes simplex virus one, uh, if you kiss somebody who has herpes simplex virus one or they cough on you, 
usually that's transmitted into the mucous membranes right inside your lip, and then the outbreak is on the lip itself, but not necessarily. I mean, you could kiss somebody and have a little itty-bitty break in the skin, and we all get chapped lips, and we all have, uh, you know, little micro uh, fissures in our lips because the lips are very active and they're traumatized a lot. We talk, we eat, we laugh, we cough, we smack our lips, we bite our lips. So there's an opportunity there. But for the most part, most viruses, upper respiratory, respiratory viruses are going to be transmitted by coming in contact with a mucous membrane. Somebody coughing on you or you walking through their mist and getting it in your nose and mouth or getting it on your hands and then touching inside your mouth or your eyes. And remember, the, the uh, inside of your eye, the, eye, the underneath the eyelid, is a mucous membrane. So just be careful there and uh, make sure that if you do come in contact with somebody with the coronavirus or any other virus and you know they're sick, make sure that you're careful not to pass it on. You may be carrying that virus for one to two weeks before you have symptoms, if you have symptoms at all. You know, I probably don't have any symptoms because my immune system is built up over the years to things like coronavirus, but I can still carry the virus for a week or two while my body's getting rid of it. And so if I cough on you or sneeze on you, hey, that's not a bad idea. I could go out into the waiting room, Ken, and cough and sneeze, and then next week I'll get more business. Is that wrong? That, Is there a I moral? think that would, that would fall under the unethical. Oh, okay, never mind then. Forget that, everybody. <laughs> I won't do that. But it's a funny idea. Yes, and a, and a good one. So, it made me laugh. At. <laughs> yeah, so we want to uh, just use our common sense when it comes to the coronavirus. If you're sick, stay home. If you got to go to work, put on a mask, wash your hands, Try not to kiss anybody and uh, just be a nice person and you'll get better and it'll be all right. Don't worry about dying from coronavirus. We've had several cases diagnosed in the United States, to my knowledge, and in Canada and in Great Britain, and to my knowledge, nobody has died. Why do people die in China? Well, remember, the healthcare system is not quite what it is. Uh, I mean, it's much better than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, but people are not used to going to the doctor. I'll tell you a little story. We were in a cab in, uh, in Xi'an, which is the ancient capital at the end of the Silk Road in northern China. And, uh, and I'm chatting with the cabbies, and, you know, we're, we're translating with our, our cell phones back and forth and jokes and all that. And some of them speak a little broken English. English is a worldwide language now. And uh, so the one cabbie finds out that I'm a doctor. And so he says, feel my pulse as if feeling the pulse of a patient is going to tell you a whole lot about them. I mean, you might be able to tell whether they're hypertensive, if it's a firm, strong pulse, or if their heartbeats are irregular or something like that. But this is what that generation of Chinese grew up with. They grew up with Chinese herbal medicine, which is, by the way, uh, not all that great, but, you know, it's what they had. And, uh, of course, I went ahead and felt his pulse, being the, the good healer that I am, laid on hands. And he said, what do you think, Doc? And I said, you're going to die, dude. <laughs> he started laughing. <laughs> Fun with cabbies <laughs> by Dr. Bill. <laughs> but, you know, the healthcare care system still evolving. So people probably don't think, oh, I can run into the clinic and, uh, 
you know, I'm too sick to go to work and there may be some imperatives or they may have some other underlying problems and, and you just don't know, or it may be old people, it may be babies. Uh, so we don't have all the statistics in yet, but that's probably the reason why we see the, uh, the problems that arise in a country like China. And remember that's 1.5 billion people. So they're what, uh, five times our size, four to five times our size. And so you think about it, if we lost a handful of people to the common cold every year, which we do, uh, then you multiply that times four or five, and you've got the number of people in China that have reportedly died from what is a common cold virus. So I don't think it's all that big of a deal, but it certainly gives the press something to talk about, and it's a good opportunity for us to remind each other uh, how we need to behave in public when we're sick or when we're concerned about a coworker or a friend also having the disease and passing it on to us. So then I also wanted to touch on real quickly, I know I talked about uh, temporal arteritis and giant cell arteritis uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, but I saw another case of this, came into the office, uh, uh, a Canadian patient, she said, oh, I've got this headache on the right side and my temple. And if you want to know what temporal is, if you take your fingers and you put them in that little, that little concavity on either side of your eyes, on your, on your forehead, you know, just between your ears and your eyes, you'll feel that little depression there. That's the temporal area, the temporal bone. And, uh, we call that in layman's terms, your temples. And, uh, we therefore call this disease temporal arteritis because the arteries in this area become inflamed and they hurt. They can also, uh, uh, it can also inflame the arteries in the eye. And so the, the symptoms that people come in with are a temporal headache and loss of vision on that side. So this is a big deal, and it should be considered an ophthalmologic emergency, an eye emergency, because if you don't treat it right away, you can lose your sight in, in that eye. And occasionally it will travel over to the other eye, too. This can also inflame other arteries. And how does it do that? Well, we're not sure what the trigger is, but we know that there are antigen antibody complexes, which I've talked about before, and they get stuck to the wall of the artery. And uh, then cells that, that fight foreign invasion, foreign art objects and particles in our system come in, white blood cells, and they, they attack this and they cause an inflammation in the artery, and the artery can actually be uh, clotted off from that. And so this is an ophthalmologic emergency. It's something that you need to know about. This affects people primarily over the age of 60, uh, more women than men, although you see it in both genders. And uh, it's easy to treat. It's easy to, to diagnose. The definitive diagnosis is to take a little biopsy of the artery, and that can be done under local uh, anesthesia. You can, uh, you can go in and the surgeon can make a little superficial incision into your temple, take out a piece of the artery, tie off the two ends that he uh, has cut into, and you'll get, you'll get by fine without that artery. There's plenty of other arteries in the neck and face to take over for that. And send that to the pathologist who will then look for the inflammatory cells and inflammatory markers. But for our practice, uh, because of the Canadian population that comes in, oftentimes we'll just treat it. 
We'll get some blood work, uh, sedimentation rate, which I explained last week. You can get some other studies, uh, interleukin-6, which is an inflammatory marker. You can get uh, rheumatoid factor. You can get lupus antibody, anti-nuclear antibodies, which is a test for lupus. You can get uh, cytoplasmic nuclear antigen antibody test. So there's an armamentarium of blood tests we can do that kind of helps us narrow it down and say, yeah, this pretty much looks like giant cell or temporal arteritis. But in the simplest of terms, if you have the symptoms, uh, you have the headache and you have the visual disturbance uh, or the visual loss, and you go to your doctor and he or she draws a sedimentation rate and starts you on prednisone and said rate comes back and it's really high, which means it's positive, then you, you probably got it, 99% sure. And the uh, other proof of the pudding is that the treatment, which frontline is prednisone, will uh, get you better right away. It's, it's just miraculous. In a day or two, you're better. <clears throat> so this is important. Now, we do have other treatments for this disease because we don't want you to be on prednisone or on cortisone-based substances for a long period of time because of the deleterious effects it can have on the system. It can push up the blood pressure. It can push up the blood sugar and cause diabetes. Uh, it can make our muscles waste. It can leach... Uh, calcium out of our bones. So we go to other treatments as quickly as we can. And the old timing drugs are like methotrexate and some of the other uh, anti-cancer drugs that in small doses work very well to suppress our immune system. We call these uh, steroid sparing drugs and steroids being prednisone and cortisone and prednisolone and dexamethasone and all the cortisone derivatives. But the corticosteroids, the cortisones, are still the mainstay of therapy. And uh, we do have other drugs, like I said, like methotrexate and cyclosporine and nasothioprine. Uh, but by the way, there's also a monoclonal antibody. My good buddies, tocilizumab, T-O-C-I-L-I-Z-U-M-A-B, tocilizumab. And this is a monoclonal antibody that's injected. And I've got one of my neighbor patients on it. And he's gotten off of prednisone altogether, so it's a great thing. And this uh, actually does stop the progression of the disease, and uh, so it is cortisone or prednisone sparing. So you can get off of that. And you say, well, how long do you have to be on prednisone? Well, usually it's one to two years, and then we try to wean you off and see if you are in remission. And this can flare back up again. But uh, if we can get you off of the prednisone for a while, good deal. That's the way to do it. Then we're happy with that, and we feel that we've made some uh, progress. Now, if you do have to be on the prednisone for a long period of time, then you want to protect your bones. You want to make sure that your blood pressure is under control. You want to make sure that your blood sugar is doing okay. It's not getting out of control. How do you protect your bones? Well, we use vitamin D3 and calcium supplement. We also use the biphosphonates, which are things like uh, uh, Boniva and, uh, uh, oh gosh, what are some of the other biphosphonates? I'm drawing a blank here, but the biphosphonates are what we give women who have osteoporosis. You can't stay on that for a long period of time, but four to five years, and then we take you off of that. And so there's treatment to prevent the bone loss, 
but it is a, a real thing and, and it's, it's a real problem. So we would prefer to get you on something else and wean you off of the prednisone, the cortisone based substances so that we preserve your muscles and your bones and your, keep your blood pressure down and your sugar under control. These are all very deleterious, uh, items. Myung Ju, my wife is here. Myung, what are some of the other biphosphonates? Boniva and Prolia is the injectable one. And what's the one you take once a week? You know, every uh, you take it on Monday when you get out of bed. What is that one? The old, the old timey one, huh? Fosamax. That's it. That's the old timey one guys is Fosamax. And we would thank, like to thank her highness for dropping by the studio this morning and, and helping us out here. Again. <laughs> yeah, it's very good there, doc. <laughs> yeah. We, we got her on the show. I tell that's you right. what it, it took, it took an act of Congress, but we did it. We got her. All right. So we've got these drugs, and now you know a little bit more about temporal arteritis. And as the population ages, and there's more and more of us in this over 60 age group, it's going to be a more common uh, condition. So if you have that headache and visual disturbance, get into your doctor. Well, I'm going to shift gears. I want to talk about uh, the president going to the right to life uh rally and tens of thousands of people marching for this. And I got to tell you, whether you agree or disagree, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, this is the first president that I've ever known to take such a, a stand and to, to put his face in front of the camera with this group or essentially with any group that's considered so emotionally, uh, such an emotionally and morally charged uh, topic. And so you got to take your hats off to this guy. I mean, he's fearless. Politically, he is fearless. And I'm really impressed with the stand that he has taken with what he has chosen to, to say to, to us and to the country. And I think it will make a difference because I think there are people who are not sure. You know, they're debating both sides of the argument and they're wondering which side is right and which side is wrong. And if you see the president, whether you love him or hate him, you still have to recognize him as a president. And, and you see this man who is of great importance to not only us, but to the world, standing up for right to life, pro-life. You got to say, oh my gosh, this is, this is really important. And this man is taking a stand. And you know what? I may want to take a stand on the side of pro-life as well. The problem with pro-choice, and I'll go through this as we get into the show after the break, but right now I just want to mention the biggest problem I have with movements like pro-choice is that the end justifies the means. And when you have an end justifying how you get there, then you're going to get yourself into trouble. You're going to end up lying, cheating, stealing, uh, breaking codes and morals and values that have been around for eons. And, and that's not good. That's not good. It disrupts all aspects of our existence. And in particular, it disrupts the uh, internal existence of the person who is practicing this form of sophistry. I don't like it. And uh, I think that if you are pro-choice, that you need to get there by being honest and, and being uh, scientific and, and the same with pro-life. I mean, I, I think that being pro-life is important. And I know a lot of people base it on their religion and their moral beliefs. 
but I have an intellectual and a, uh, uh, <clears throat> how would I say, a philosophical, uh, logical approach to this, and I'll get into that later. You may ask yourself, when did all this stuff start? Well, this all started back in the 50s and the 60s, and uh, the the big guy, the father of the whole pro-choice movement, was a was an obstetrician named Bernard Nathanson, N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-N. Now, he spanned both the Jewish and the Catholic side of the family. He was born and raised Jewish, and then later in life, he actually converted to Catholicism. I'll tell you the story of, of this man real quickly here before we go to break. Now, Nathanson was an obstetrician. His father was an obstetrician from New York. And in 1969, he founded the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, NARAL, N-A-R-A-L, later renamed National Abortion Rights Action League. Now, he was also the former director of a New York City reproductive and sexual health center, which was an abortion clinic and a birth control clinic. And uh, he was a big believer in abortion. And he felt that it had a place uh, in reproductive uh, science and in and, uh, birth control. And uh, he was practicing this and very active and uh, actually led the movement. And so he originally started off pro-choice. But then in the 1970s, when ultrasound, which is the sound wave pictures we can take of the inside of the body, it's non-invasive. I use it to look at the heart look at the neck arteries, look at the leg arteries, and we can look at uh, the female reproductive system. We can see inside the womb and see the fetus and the embryo developing, kidneys, liver. We can see a lot of organs with it. But when this came out in the 1970s and Nathanson watched an abortion in real time with an ultrasound, he said, oh, my God, what have I done? because he was looking at a living being being uh, sucked out of the uterus with instrumentation. And uh, he changed, and he became pro-life. And he uh, actually led the movement, and he he uh, revealed the tactics that had been used by the pro-choice, pro-abortion people, that they had falsified statistics and that all these thousands of women who were dying in backstreet alley abortions, that was all a bunch of baloney. And, you know, I was uh, in a medical family growing up. I never heard of anybody dying from an abortion in an alley. And my parents were pediatricians and uh, active in the medical community. And in the 1960s, I was in college and aware of what was going on. I never saw any, any of this. So he changed, and he morphed over the years, and he wrote a couple of books, and he wrote a book called Aborting America, where he first exposed what he called the dishonest beginnings of the abortion movement. And in 1984, he directed and narrated a film titled The Silent Scream in cooperation with National Right to Life Committee, and this contained an ultrasound video of a late-term abortion. His second documentary, Eclipse of Reason, dealt with late-term abortions. And he stated that the numbers he cited for NARL when he was pro-choice concerning the number of deaths linked to illegal abortions were false figures. They had lied. So the end justified their means, the means being dishonest. And he wrote a book in 1996 called The Hand of God. 
And he said, I am one of those who helped usher in this barbaric age. And now he wanted to write it. And so he, he did, and he actually converted to Catholicism. And in the 1990s, he converted to Catholicism, and he said, when they asked him why, and this is what I asked my father, why are you going from Judaism to Catholicism? My dad said it was more hopeful. Well, Nathanson said it was the most forgiving religion. And I got to tell you, the Catholics are very accepting, although they're also very opinionated at times when it comes to their religious and spiritual beliefs. That's all right, as long as they don't force it on me. Well, Nathan, Nathanson married four times, and uh, he died of cancer in 2011 at the age of 84. He was survived by his fourth wife, Christine, and a son, Joseph, from a previous marriage, who now resides in New Jersey. And so that's the story of Dr. Nathanson, who led the initial pro-choice, pro-abortion movement, and after the ultrasound was invented, and he watched the reality of the situation, became a pro-lifer, and that's a good thing. And if you have used ultrasound and you've looked inside the body and been able to see things that the average person can't see, and you realize what you're dealing with when you look at an infant, uh, a fetus, or an embryo in uterus, and then you realize, whoa, wait a minute, this really is a life form. This thing's alive. Now look. I understand people kill animals because they got to eat and I don't eat meat, but I'm not a fanatic. I'm not a Nazi about it. Uh, and I understand that, that there's a food chain and we're all part of it, but you don't eat your own kind. You don't kill your own kind unless it's in self-defense. And we'll talk about that when I come back. I'm Dr. Bill. I'm going to go grab a cup of Joe. Ken, you got the helm, bud. I'll be right back. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Syrian state media and opposition activists say government forces have reached the outskirts of a key rebel-held town today, part of a week-long government offensive into the country's last rebel stronghold located in the northwestern province of Idlib. Opposition activists and paramedics say the town is almost empty as a result of the intense bombardment. Officials from Libya's two rival governments say fighting has erupted as the country's east-based forces advance toward the strategic western town of Misrata. Today's clashes further erode a crumbling ceasefire agreement brokered earlier this month. And health officials in Southern California have confirmed a third U.S. case of a new pneumonia-like virus from China. The Orange County Health Care Agency says the CDC has confirmed a traveler from China tested positive for the virus. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. 
Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by, making minimum payments? You should know. The credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out. Credit card companies would rather you didn't know that there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. There are debt relief programs that help people like you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $500 million of debt. National Debt Relief has helped so many people, they're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. You don't have to declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation loan. You have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a large portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-797-5868. 800-797-5868. That's 800-797-5868. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Recovery is real. We believe in you. Every day, millions of people celebrate recovery from addiction and mental illness while others begin their journey. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today we'll see some sun in areas of high clouds this morning, mainly cloudy this afternoon, high 68. Tonight, cloudy skies, low 54. Monday, considerable cloudiness, expect a high of 70. Monday night, clear to partly cloudy, low 56. Tuesday, mostly sunny skies for a high of 72. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Chris Morelli for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and we're barking right at you, everybody. So we talked a little about the coronavirus and temporal arteritis, and then we morphed into the pro-life rally that the president attended, and I thought he showed a lot of courage in doing that. I'm sure that people on the left will say that he was just playing to the uh, the Christian right base, uh, but uh, you know he's been pro-life for quite a while now. So uh, and he didn't have. I mean, he could have gotten the the Christian rights vote without going to the pro-life rally. But uh, so I th- I think he he deserves some kudos for that, uh, whether you agree or disagree with his stance. So. Let's talk about this abortion situation. Let me give you my slant on it. Now, a lot of the people who are pro-choice will say that uh, all the abortions, almost all the abortions take place in the first trimester when the fetus cannot exist independent of the mother as it is attached to the placenta and umbilical cord. And, of course, it's dependent upon her and her health, and it can't be regarded as a separate entity. And there are a lot of women that feel that way. Uh, is also they feel that it's their bodies and they have a right to do with it what they want. We'll get into that if we have time. Well, Khalil Gibran, the great poet, the great uh, uh, Muslim poet, he said, our children are not our own. They're the product of life's longing for itself. 
And, and there's some wisdom in that. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, do physical laws exist even in the absence of, of physical existence? I mean, are there physical laws even before there's any physical material around? And if there are, are there moral laws that exist? Now, my friend Al would say no, that morality is uh, something that you you reason to and uh, that it's not a moral law. Immanuel Kant would say that there are pre-existing uh, moral and philosophical laws that guide the universe as well as physical laws. But what I'm asking you is whether or not you believe in a defined existence. Are we here because there, there, there is a natural imperative for existence? I mean, is there, uh, is there a desire for life to, to be, to live? I would think so. And in religious terms, it would be considered, I guess, special creation. But, you know, I'm not a religious guy. It's, it's just a matter of wording to me. I mean, if there's a, that Im, imperative in nature and a natural law, and that, that imperative is that existence desires itself, that uh, I want to be here. Uh, most of us do. We don't want to die. Almost everybody I know is afraid of death and tries to live as long as they can. And so let's assume that that, that desire for life, and it's in all animals and plants, and every, everything that, that we consider living seems to want to stay alive. And so I think that there is a, a rational uh, argument here to say that if there is a living organism inside of me, a good one or a bad one, whether it's a baby or a bacteria that's causing pneumonia, that that organism wants to live and it's going to do its best to survive. And you say, well, that's not really consciousness. That's not really self-awareness. Well, yeah, I understand that. But I mean, let's face it. If there is a, a natural physical law that demands that the universe work in this way, uh, are we already predestined? I mean, is there, an, an, is there not an imperative for us to be here? Now, look, you can defy natural laws. You can escape gravity. You can go up into the space station and stay there several months. But there's consequences to that. You're going to lose muscle and bone mass. Uh, your inner ear is not going to be able to function properly, and you're going to have some uh, time to adjust to the motion sickness that you will have. There's going to be other consequences in the future that we probably don't know about yet. And that doesn't mean that we can't figure out ways to overcome these things. But still, we are subject to the laws of nature. And one of those laws is the desire to exist. And now the pro-choice people will say, well, you know, it's my body and I should be able to do what I want with it. And that the concept of personhood is different from the concept of human life. Human life, they agree, occurs at conception. But then they say, well, is a fertilized egg used for in vitro fertilization? Is that also a human life? And if it is, then why do we destroy those and routinely throw them out? And I think that's a good question. And I think there are people who would say it's probably not our our right to destroy uh, uh, an egg that's been fertilized. There are other people who will say, well, look, that egg's not implanted, so it doesn't have any chance at life. It's not in a womb. 
And so you're talking a little bit different here. Is it murder if you kill a, a fertilized egg? I think that's a good debate. And then the, the pro-choice people say, well, adoption is not an alternative to abortion because it remains a woman's choice. It's her choice to decide whether or not she wants to give the kid up for adoption. And so there, there are arguments that, that they make and that they say are uh, an imperative for funding abortion, for allowing abortion. They say that teenage mothers have more problems. And that's true, they do. You know, that's where a lot of the abuse and neglect happens is with young parents. I was a young parent, and I know I was not that great. But does that mean that we backtrack and uh, undo all adolescent pregnancies and kids that were born to parents and adolescents? I know my oldest daughter wouldn't like that. She's a Ph.D., uh, and uh, a doctor who teaches at the University of Kentucky and does research there. And so there's a lot of arguments back and forth. But I think that if you put it into uh, logistic terms and logical terms and realize that, yes, we do manipulate nature, but we do it in our own best interest for the most part, and that we do control the birth rate by practicing birth control. But that we do it with the, uh, with the number one law in mind, and that is self-preservation, that we want to live. So we're not going to control the birth rate by committing suicide. And I think that we can carry that argument into other aspects of our existence and of our interaction as human beings. And, and I don't think that homicide is a way to, to control the birth, uh, control the population. You know, there are people that say that if the population continues to grow, we're going to die as a species. And it's true that if you have an overpopulation of a species, they will seemingly eat up all the resources. I mean, you see this with a bacterial colony on a Petri dish or on a dead carcass. You know, once all of the material, all the food stuff has been eaten up, the bacteria die out. Well, but we're not bacteria. You know, we have the ability to do a little bit further planning ahead than a bacteria. And that's not to say that a bacteria doesn't have some self-awareness or isn't a living organism. It is. I mean, it's just in terms of. Uh, mental function, it's, it's primitive, you know, it doesn't have our ability, but we do, we can plan ahead. And I remember as a kid, and you probably remember this too, Ken, that we thought that the world would be overpopulated. And so there was a population control movement in the 1960s. Oh, certainly it was the, it was real concern back then, it seemed. Yeah. And so since 1960, the population has more than doubled. And not only are people not starving, more people are living healthier uh, better lives than ever before. <laughs> sure, we've learned how to produce more food. We've learned how to produce food. We've learned how to do it in a smaller surface area. We know how to do uh, higher protein, higher uh, quality food. Uh, our cows are two and a half times bigger than they were when we were kids. They produce two and a half times as much milk per cow. And so, uh, and this is all through science and genetics and, and all the things that that the uh, that the uh, back to nature people don't like, but 
that's what makes makes us healthier, happier, uh, wiser species. And so I think that we have to take that into consideration, that we do have that ability. We do have the ability to alter our environment and to use our knowledge of science and of nature and natural laws. So I think it's important that we moderate our reproduction to control our population as we grow, uh, partly for physical reasons and partly for financial reasons until we can figure out how to better accommodate a larger population. And apparently we have done that. And we can modify our, our environment to accommodate this. So I think that since the world population has almost tripled since I was born in 1949, World War II, the world's actually become a better place for all of these 7 billion people. A much better place, a much healthier, happier, uh, more secure place. And uh, people say, well, we're destroying the environment and the planet's going to die in a few years. You know, we've heard the planet was going to die from nuclear holocaust. And, and I said this back in the 60s. We're not going to die from nuclear holocaust or nuclear waste. If we're going to die from anything, it'll be our own carbon-based waste, our own hydrocarbon waste, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. That's what's going to kill us. And so people listened, and they said, you know, and this was back in the 60s when I was very popular. Uh, you don't believe that, Ken, I know, but it's true. <laughs> I had three girlfriends at one time. Really? No kidding. Well, well, <laughs> My popularity, yeah. Hey, I and no I new said, respect for the doc. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I said, and so people said, "Hey, I think Handelman's right. We got to get the carbon monoxide out of the system." So the cars all had catalytic converters put into them now, and so there's no carbon monoxide release now. It's all carbon dioxide, and now this is the bad actor because it's global warming and greenhouse gas and all that. Actually, the major greenhouse gas is water, water vapor, but that's okay. We'll let the uh, we'll let the uh, green people think it's carbon dioxide. We can figure out a way how to handle this. We can do this. This is not the end of the world. We figured out how to feed ourselves as we tripled in population. And so all these things say to me that there is a, a logic, uh, a, a, a way to logically get from point A to point B. And I think that if we're talking about pro-choice versus pro-life, the pro-life makes much more sense because even if you don't want the baby, there are multiple avenues and you say, well, I don't even want to be pregnant. Well, well now, now you're talking about your own personal convenience and uh, you know what? Mother Nature gave us this equipment and it's not there as baggage. It's there to be used. Now, that's not everybody. The bell-shaped curve, we know some people can't have babies or shouldn't have babies. Some people are not physiologically or, or health-wise or mentally capable of going through pregnancy, but that's a very small part of the population. And we all agree rape and incest are, are pretty heinous things and that a woman should not be forced to carry a baby uh, that is a product of rape or incest. And there's, there are people who would argue, well, wait a minute, even that's not that big of a deal. Come on, because if you don't want the baby, uh, there's a lot of people that would love to adopt. 
So we have many, many logical arguments, not just spiritual arguments. And I think that the main one is that at the instant of the Big Bang, at the instant of the beginning of what we recognize as the moment of, of conception of our universe, there was inherent in every subatomic particle, every electron, every neutron, every proton, every quark, every boson particle, there was a, a desire to exist. And that desire has carried itself through every aspect of human evolution, of, of uh, the universe's evolution. Even stars want to exist, believe it or not. And they have a lifespan, and they fight for their existence. So why should an embryo or a fetus be any different? It shouldn't. It should not. And you say, well, kids make mistakes. Yeah, of course, I made a mistake. I made a wonderful mistake. And my then wife came home and said, you know, I have an opportunity to get an abortion. Do you want me to get an abortion? And I said, heck no. I mean, I was 20, 19, 20 years old, and she was 17 or 18. Wait a minute. Is that statutory rape? She was 18. So I said, no, I want I want a baby. I love I love kids. I you know I'm, I'm I believe in life. I believe that we are here to uh, carry on what we are and to send it into the future. That's that's our purpose. Our our purpose biologically is very simple: reproduce and make a better environment for our progeny. Now you can dress it up in all kinds of fancy uh, philosophies. You can dress it up in. Uh, wealth, you can dress it up in uh, a desire to have fun, to take a vacation, to do all these things, send your kid to a great school. But the bottom line is we're here for two biological purposes, to reproduce and to make a better world for our progeny so that they have a better shot at survival. And so I believe in that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try being a parent. Why not? My parents did it. And their parents did it. And for a million generations back, parents have done it. And I think that that's important for us to remember that this is, this is not a new phenomena, getting pregnant and having a baby. And so I think there's a, a real logic to what Khalil Gibran says, that our children are not our, our own. They are the product of life's longing for itself. And so any life that longs for itself should be respected any life. And that includes something inside of a woman's uterus, an infant, a fetus, an embryo, whatever you want to call it. Now, I want to take up the other argument that my sister say, well, aren't our bodies our own? And Betty Friedan wrote that book back in the 60s, Our Bodies, Ourselves, or the early 70s. And that was a big hit with the uh, hippie movement. Is my body my own? What if we go to war? What if we're attacked and the government says, Handelman, you got to come into the military now. We need you. And I say, no, I don't want to. I said, well, you don't have a choice. Your body is not your own. You belong to your country. Well, I mean, you can't tell women that. They're not going to like that argument. But let's face it. We are herd animals and we do belong to each other. And husbands and family... They should have input. And you say, well, it's my body. It's my womb. I can do what I want with it. Really? So you're, you're working in a vacuum and a void? No, you're not. 
you're working with somebody else to make that baby, at least for now. That may change in the future. Well, so you get the idea of where I'm going with this. And again, I say hats off to the president. Kudos. I think it's really a great thing. And I appreciate you guys listening to my argument. Love you. I'll see you guys next week. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Hey there. Hey there.